Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to this week's episode of Mid Liberty. I am your host, Caleb Franz. This is the voice of liberty for a new generation. I am thrilled to have you here this week. This week, we have a really, really good treat for you. Um, <laughs> this week, we have been fortunate enough to be able to uh, bring on Dave Rubin of The Rubin Report, um, and we talk about everything you can imagine uh, talking about Dave Rubin with. Uh, we talk about his his, his journey to... Uh, from being a liberal to being a, a classical liberal in, in the very traditional sense, um, which really it seems like there wasn't a whole lot that changed on a principle basis, but it, the world around him, um, which which is very similar to me, just kind of on the inverse where I came from a, a conservative background. Um, and then we also talk about his, his how his business is doing at the Rubin Report. We talk about some, some things that's been happening with YouTube and how they've been demonetizing some, some things. Uh, we, we go over free speech, which is, of course, a favorite topic of his and mine. And then, of course, we, we can't have a conversation like this without touching on the most important topics of the day, which are uh, that of Star Wars. So, please sit back and enjoy this interview. I'm I'm thrilled to have him on and, and bring him on as a guest. This was a a great interview that I think you'll really enjoy. So please sit back and enjoy my interview with Dave Rubin. Dave Rubin, welcome to Mill Liberty. Caleb, thanks for having me. Uh, so why don't you uh, start out by telling the audience a little bit about your backstory for those who do not know. Uh, and tell us how you ended up getting to where you are right now with uh, with the Rubin Report. Yeah, well, uh, I am best known as the host of the Rubin Report. I am a true New Yorker, born and bred. I was born in Brooklyn. I grew up in Long Island. I went to college upstate New York at SUNY Binghamton. I lived in Manhattan uh, doing stand-up most of my adult life. Moved out here to L.A. about five years ago where I was doing a show, the first incarnation of the Rubin Report with the Young Turks Network. Uh, they're a pretty far left progressive network. I didn't quite realize how far when I when I started working there, although they, they seemed to drift, drift further to the left uh, while I was there and then eventually off the deep end altogether. Uh, but then left there about uh, three years ago and uh, or a little less, actually. And started ultimately doing the the independent version of the Rubin Report that most people know me from now, which is a long form interview show, you know, hour long sort of old school Larry King style interview show where I talk to people all over the political spectrum and I talk to athletes and scientists and religious people and non-religious people. Uh, and it's sort of all framed within the ideas of liberty and individuality and especially free speech, of course. And, uh, you know, I try to I try to learn something every week. And fortunately, I've had a nice guest list uh, that continues even to today as we're taping this right now. I just chatted with John Stossel, who I'm sure, you know, Very and I'm nice. sure your audience knows. I just chatted with him this morning. And it's like I'm getting to talk to people who've influenced me throughout my life. And it's uh, it's a pretty great thing. Yeah, I, I, I can certainly uh, relate to that. That's <laughs> a lot of this, including this interview, uh, seems to be for me as well. Um, I'm curious about, though, nice. the the business side of, of what you've done and how has it been a struggle and what are some of the easier things that you might not have expected, uh, in going completely independent? Yeah, well, 
you know, I'm used to the the struggle thing because, as I said, I did stand up for about 12 years in New York. And even if you're the greatest stand up ever, you know, when I was really doing it all the time, I, I was pretty good and I was uh, succeeding. I had a lot of good success at a young age. Um, but, you know, you're always struggling as a comic pretty much until you really, really break through. You're always struggling because in a big city, whether it's San Francisco or New York or L.A. or Chicago, there's so many comics there. The level of competition is so high. It's really hard to make a living. Then a lot of the guys end up on the road, but nobody really wants to be a road comic because it's just kind of miserable existence going from city to city and doing the same act and you can't really work on the craft and all that stuff. So uh, I, I know what that that struggle is all about, working all sorts of crazy jobs to just make a dime. I started some comedy clubs with some other comics and had some success there. Um, but in terms of going independent, you know, because I was at, at the Young Turks, as I mentioned, then for about a year, I was at Aura TV, which is a digital network co-founded by, uh, by my friend and mentor, Larry King. Um, when I went independent, which, uh, it's about a year and a half ago, it was June of 2015. We didn't know, you know, we, we jumped on Patreon, which is a fan funding uh, site and we set up our, our plan of attack and we had seen a few people that had some success with it. Uh, there's tons of people on Patreon now, but when we did it, it was still on the early side. And the night before we launched, I said to my guys, I was like, look, this whole thing could be over tomorrow. This may have been the biggest mistake ever. I said, I don't think it's going to turn out that way, but we shall see. And really within two hours of launching the next morning, um, we realized how quickly this thing had caught on with people and not, not just caught on in that they were enjoying it, listening and watching and sharing it, but that they were willing to put their money down for content that otherwise is free. So, you know, all of our interviews are free. Now, if you're on Patreon, you get some extra tier rewards. I do little bonus segments and Q and A's and things of that nature, but all of our interviews remain hundred percent free. So these people who support us, uh, it's about 5,000 people. Uh, they're supporting us knowing that if if they drop their individual support, most likely someone else would support and we could keep going. Uh, so it's a beautiful exchange we have going here because for people that can't afford, there are people that, you know, pay, some people pay $2 a month, but some people pay into the hundreds of dollars and you're allowing these ideas to get out there in, in ways that in other ways they couldn't. So, uh, you know, there's been a, we've been on a nice run and we've built a nice business here and you know we get YouTube rev and we get uh, we just put ads on our podcast which we hadn't done for years but uh, as I'm sure you're aware the YouTube demonetization thing's been kind of crazy right. so we put ads on the podcast uh, we have a partnership with a great organization a classical liberal uh, organization called Learn Liberty so we figured out how to build a really great uh, profitable small business you know we're totally in the black we own all of our all of our equipment uh i pay for a hundred percent of my employees health insurance um we also we do a rev share on, on the youtube stuff because i want people to feel that the more work they do and the better work that they do and the more views we get and things like that that they'll profit more so i've tried to put a lot of the principles that i believe in the the classical liberal and libertarian ideals i've tried to put them in action into the the business and uh so far it's worked um, and I'm, I'm glad you, you brought up YouTube because that is something that I want to touch on a little bit. But first of all, uh, before we get into that, I, I am curious about your thoughts on how the, the political environment has really helped you and, and the Rubin Report grow because it seems like because there's such this, this void in intellectual thought that it, it gives you the perfect opportunity to just 
go and, and fill it with, with what you're doing. Yeah, well, you know, I say it all the time, but I wish, look, if the country was in a more sane place and that meant there was less use for what I was doing, I'd be willing to make that trade-off right. uh, for the good of the country and probably of the world. Unfortunately, that doesn't seem to be the, the planet we're living on right now and certainly not the political system in America that we're living in. Um, look, it's when things are crazy and when they're upside down and especially with Trump and the media and all of this stuff these days, when, when people are confused, when they feel like they can't trust the media, when there's so much fake news out there, all that, that a little common sense, uh, a little sense of decency and a little desire to, to do something good, I think, has extra weight. So I don't think that what I'm doing is reinventing the wheel. I think I'm having interesting conversations with people. I think I've been honest and upfront about my own political evolution. I try to tell my audience what I'm thinking, either through the way I ask questions or with my direct message every week. Um, but because everyone is so polarized right now, the way social media has funneled us into our own echo chambers and all of that, I think by showing people that you can actually uh, agree with people, of course you can agree with people, but more importantly that you can disagree with people and still be okay with that. Still, you know, my studio is in my home, that I can invite people into my home who I disagree with on things and okay, you you shared your opinions and, and that's great. That's what it's all about. I mean, for all the people that are constantly screaming about how terrible things are here, or how horrible everyone is, or how racist half the country is, or all this stuff. It's like, this is exactly what a pluralistic, multicultural society is supposed to look like. Now, can we get better at doing a lot of things? Of course. But at the same time, it's like, what what would you prefer besides this? This this still gives, this country gives more opportunity to more people than any other place, probably in the history of the world. So we have to work on making it better and, and be okay with disagreeing with people that that's what it's all about i mean that's what the idea that's what the battle of ideas is all about that you're going to disagree with somebody and hopefully if you've done the intellectual legwork to understand really what you're talking about you can beat them in the in the marketplace of ideas but if we don't let people talk if we silence everybody and shout everybody down and deplatform everybody well then you're actually taking away the most inherently american and freedom-loving thing that there is well not only that but it's it's also damaging to to yourself, because if, if you are too afraid yeah. to challenge yourself, then then you're not growing intellectually. Well, that's that's the irony of what's happening here. With you know the way that these words of racist and bigot and homophobe and white supremacist and transphobe and all these things are tossed around so casually that it actually shows the the inability for people to have an intellectual argument. So it's like every time you see someone say something, if they get shouted down immediately, now that doesn't mean that there aren't real racists out there. Of course there are. Mm -hmm. Are there people who are truly bigoted? Of course. Are there people who are prejudiced? Prejudice means to prejudge. Of course there are. Um, but if that is your go-to in your argument, then that's not really an argument. So those people are sort of, I think they're self-selecting themselves out of the mature adult conversation that we should be having these days. Uh, and, uh, and either unfortunately or interestingly, or it's just a sign of the times, I find it much easier right now to sit down with all sorts of people who are center to right than it is to sit down with people to the left. I think people on the left as a, as a general whole, so I don't mean everybody, of course, right. but have had it so easy. They've owned the media and the political discourse, 
and everything for so long that they're, they're weak in understanding their own ideas, which is why the second they hear an idea, so you say, all right, I'm for low taxes, and they'll say, well, you see, that makes you racist because that means you're against helping black people and blah, blah. And of course, this is insane. This is a crazy thought, but they, they didn't have to do the work because everything was being spoon-fed to them because they own the political machine for the last eight years. They've owned the media and all of that and Hollywood and the way we get our information. So I find it right now to build bridges with people on the right and center and especially libertarians, I find that a lot easier right now than building bridges on the left. But I'll keep trying to build them. And of course, there are some sane people on the left that I just would have disagreements with at this point. But as a liberal, as, as a classical liberal, there's very little left for me on the left these days, unfortunately. Um, so, so talk with us a little bit about your experience with, with YouTube. Has, has there been any, yeah. like any breakthrough with that or is it just, is it still just, you know, banging your, your head against the wall? Yeah. So there's two pieces here that I think people need to understand sort of at the same time. So first off, there was that whole thing, which was called adpocalypse, which was when all of these companies companies, AT&T, I think was the biggest one, they just pulled their ads out of YouTube altogether. They didn't want their ads playing on Alex Jones and a couple other things. So they just massively pulled ads out. Now, in that case, in that case, everyone's being hit, right? If there's just less ads to go around, you know, it's like a bulk service. So if there is a million dollars worth of ads to go around, you can spread that over X amount of things. If suddenly that's only $50,000 worth of ads, well, then there's just less ads. So I don't think that's a conspiracy. Now, were these companies and AT&T and whatever were they a little misguided in pulling all of their ads? I mean, I don't think anyone watches a YouTube ad and think that that means it's a sponsor of the content of the video. It's just it's just eyeballs. I mean, that, that's just all it is. So I think were they misguided in doing that? Probably. But they can as companies, they can do whatever they want. Um, the other issue then with YouTube is that there does seem to be some sort of political bent to the way things are being monetized. Now, this I don't have any absolute evidence on, and I know for sure that there are people on the left who have been hit by this stuff as well. But there does seem to be a bigger feeling amongst people on the right, especially if you talk about free speech, if you talk about Islam, if you talk about religion in general, uh, if you talk about basic any basic sort of conservative values or you talk about abortion or anything else, that there's more of a feeling that your videos are not getting out to the feed properly, that you're dropping in subscribers. I mean, I've talked to a zillion people about this sort of thing and saw what was happening on our channel. Now, on a positive note, uh, about three weeks ago, I was on Tucker Carlson on Fox News talking about this. And quite literally, since that day, we've had basically our best 21 day subscriber growth ever. So I don't know what happened if it was because I went public that then YouTube started whatever they were doing to fiddle with us and fiddle with our subscribers and our views and our monetization, if they just stopped or what, I don't know exactly what's going on. Maybe it's getting better for everybody suddenly. Uh, but ours seems to have done really nicely. And just in the last, you know, 20 or 21 days, we have, we have over 20,000 subscribers. The, the money seems to be reappearing. Uh, they're not, they're not just randomly, uh, demonetizing videos. I mean, we put up two videos with Douglas Murray last week. He talks about Islam and culture and identity and all of these things that are all the buzzwords that they they were taking you know monetization off of. And our videos were monetized. So I, at the moment, as I speak to you this very second, I, I don't know what to make of what's going on. And there may be other channels that are being hit in ways that we're not. Yeah, and I, I it's it's interesting to me because obviously you know, YouTube as well within their, their 
you know their rights. It's it has, it's not a free speech issue in the in the context of the First Amendment, but it is a free speech issue in the context of the spirit of of free speech and open dialogue and what it's supposed to promote. And I, I find it. Yes, you can obviously you can obviously defend them and say that it's not you know it's it's not against the First Amendment to for for YouTube to do this, but it is against the mm-hmm. spirit of it. Yeah, well, I like that you made that distinction, and I think this is what we need to be talking about a little bit more these days, especially with everything going on in the NFL. Yeah, the First Amendment is about the government coming for your free speech, so of course, of course, YouTube putting ads on a video or not or unsubscribing people from their channels and all those that has nothing to do with the first amendment but you're right about the spirit of free speech i mean the spirit of of this free exchange of ideas uh is an important piece of what democracy is if we really want to figure out the best way to all live together and the best way to function together as a, a country of so many people so yes i am not claiming in any way that there is a free speech meaning of first amendment issue here right now there are other plenty of other issues though related to this because for example if if let's say there is a political bent to the way they're monetizing things if you know that you can't talk about important issues like free speech or islam or even taxes or abortion or whatever whatever the issues may be well then as a creator you do have to make money to create unless you're independently wealthy which i'm sure most of us aren't (laughs) so there they can force you to self-censor in a way if you you know that, well, if I just do videos on video games and toys and they're going to make a lot of money, then we're going to get a gajillion of those and we're not going to get anything on the issues that really matter. So there's still important free speech and free exchange of ideas issues here. But, yeah, it's not it's not First Amendment related per se. Now, what an interesting thing is, is whether, you know, I've seen a lot of people on the right who are generally for small government being arguing lately that, you know, Google should be broke up like a monopoly. Right. I'm 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 50-50 on this because my more libertarian side thinks that the government shouldn't come in and do this and that I still believe in capitalism and I believe in competition. So hopefully some other people will come out with perhaps better services and people will find some other outlets. I would always rather go that way. But I do think it's interesting right now that you're seeing a, a growing movement of people on the right who feel that they're being censored or screwed with by the social media companies. So it's not just YouTube, Twitter and Facebook as well. Um that they're the ones that are coming now for government intervention when you'd think it traditionally would be people on the left. So all of these issues sort of make strange bedfellows out of all of us. Right. And I mean, that's, that's kind of the, the natural course of events as soon as one political party gains power and the other one loses it. That is as soon as that happens, Mm -hmm. the one in power is a little bit more friendly to government intervention than the one without it. Um, Precisely. is an interesting segue because I this is something else I'm curious about. Talk to me about your political evolution um, from where you were to where you are and possibly where you are now to where you think you might end up be. <laughs> uh, well, I won't predict the future here, uh, but, you know, we can do this again in a year and, and see where I'm at. But right. uh, look, I, I've always been a liberal. I've always thought of myself as liberal. My my family growing up were all Democrats, all liberals. Um, but when we say liberal, it, it de- depends what you mean by that word. Now, I mean it in, in the old school sense of what liberal meant, you know, in the JFK sense of what liberal meant. Uh, ask not what your country can do for you ask what you can do for your country i mean that's a liberal principle actually but imagine if bernie said that at a rally 
that's completely the reverse of what progressive politics are. Progressive politics are always about asking what the government can do for you. Can the government take from someone and give to you? So liberal and progressive have nothing to do with each other. Now, liberalism, which truly is about the individual, which is about limiting the state and is about you maximizing your potential, that's what liberalism is. You know, people think that live and let live is simply a libertarian principle. But the line between classical liberal and libertarian is, is a very thin line, almost a blurred line. And it really comes down to, you know, well, I think me as a, a classical liberal, I think that there are places where the government uh, should be involved. And libertarians, it's a little harder to pin that. It's different for everybody. That's sort of the inherent conflict within libertarianism. Uh, but, but there's great fertile ground there to, to all sit down and agree or, or disagree about that. And that's, by the way, why I love having libertarians on they're completely open to new ideas almost without exception i find that so i would say i was always liberal in 1988 when i was in uh seventh grade or eighth grade it was the michael dukakis versus george hw bush election and i was in a student uh government thing and we were uh, i was helping dukakis win i was incredibly upset when he lost i thought conservatives were the evil people and that the democrats were the good guys looking out for the other guy and they were taking care of black people and poor people and whatever else there is and then that feeling ran with me for a long time. It led me to the Young Turks, where they were more, le you know, they always wanted more and more government. I, you know, they were always calling Republicans racist and all this stuff. And then it started, it then it just sort of culminated in a few things, sort of like Charlie Hebdo was one of my wake up moments when I couldn't believe the amount of people saying, well, don't draw these cartoons, don't upset people. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and a concern about not the victims who were dead, but a concern about another group of people who at the same time you were saying had nothing to do with this. There was that there, my real wake up, of course, as I've talked about many times was watching Sam Harris, uh, in that insane debate with, uh, Ben Affleck on real time. And just the way the media, the next day, just completely through Sam and Bill, Bill, who's been the standard bearer of the American left, just threw them under the bus. And suddenly it was on Bill Maher and Sam Harris to prove that they weren't racist, even though, first off, Islam isn't a race. And secondly, uh, no one in their right no one in their right mind would accuse Bill Maher of being a racist. You know, he's fought for every leftist principle ever. Now, you may, as a libertarian, you may argue that these are the wrong principles. But just this, this inherent knee-jerk reaction to demonize everybody, to not be okay with debating ideas, these are not liberal principles. And that's why I say that the, the left is no longer liberal. I judge people as individuals. So I don't judge them by, by the color of their skin or their sexuality or anything else. That, that's prejudging. That's prejudice. I judge people as individuals. What do you think? But unfortunately, the modern left judges as, they, well, black people should be treated this way. Muslims should be treated this way. White people, especially white, evil white Christians should be treated this way. And that's actually the essence of prejudice. Uh, it's a crazy way to view the world. And that's why I talk about this stuff as much as I do. I, I find that really interesting because it's it's sort of the inverse of my personal political uh, journey. I started off very... Uh, conservative, very social conservative. In fact, um, I'm a, I'm a minarchist now, but you know it, it's it's sort of the same uh, journey, except it's just flipped on its head. I I watched Fox all the time when I was younger, um, and now it just seems like my principles haven't really changed. It's just the world around it and my commitment to the truth may have been reinforced, and that's what everything else has changed. Do you find that? A lot of other people 
um, in today's political climate that it's it's forging. While on one side it is it is is creating a lot of divide, but on the other side it seems like it's forging a lot of individuals who typically wouldn't necessarily be in the same room or have you know be having conversations. They're bringing those people together because they can find that common ground. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, everyone, conventional wisdom right now is that the country is split in half, everyone hates each other, and everything's evil, and we're veering off a cliff. Now, I get it. If you're on social media all day, especially Twitter, that's what you're going to think of everything. But I don't think that's reality. I, I think most people, the essence of most people is basically live and let live. The essence of most people is basically go out and get what's yours. Don't get anything you're not entitled to, but work hard and sacrifice, and hopefully you'll do better. And then if you do better, maybe your kids will do better. And, and that is the American dream. That's the way things always have worked. Now, has it been an imperfect system? Have there been problems with in the system? And have there been laws that were passed that were that were unfair to people of certain races and ethnicities and, and religions and all of that? Yes. Has most of that been rectified? Yes. What we needed, obviously, is equal opportunity, not equal outcome. Uh, but to your question, I absolutely think new alliances are being formed in really interesting ways right now, because I think partly what's happened here is the left has gone so crazy with the virtue signaling and the oppression Olympics and using victimhood as virtue. It's not a virtue to be a victim. What's a, what's a virtue is to whatever, to take whatever circumstances you have, take those circumstances and make the best life, make the best life, do what is best for you. And then hopefully by doing best for yourself, you'll do what's best for your family, for your community and so on. So I think the left has gone so hysterical with this that basically everyone except the far left, which is an extremely loud group of people, but I don't think it's that many people, actually. They have, they have an undue influence in uh, politics. They have an undue influence in media and Hollywood and all that. But they're basically pushing everyone else center and right. So it's very easy. If, if you're an anarchist, I could have – I've had uh, – you should watch my interview with, with Brian Kaplan if you haven't seen it. We had a great interview where he definitely goes more into – uh, you know, some of the, the anarchist stuff that it's not my cup of tea, but we had a great conversation that I'd love to, to pick up on. I find that, that everyone on the right conservatives right now, I mean, I get invited to, to schools all the time right now. My fall is jammed. It's mostly libertarians and conservatives that are inviting me. So you can't tell me that conservatives are not okay with diversity of thought because I'm gay married. I'm pro-choice. I'm for legalizing marijuana. I'm for a social safety net. Um, I think there is a way we can have public health care. So these people are still inviting me, yet I have no invites from young Democrats or the, the progressives of tomorrow or any of that. So they love diversity, meaning they love diversity of color, but they really don't like diversity of thought. And on the right right now, I see a tremendous amount of diversity of thought and, and a willingness to come together and say, yeah, all right, we, you know, look, I may I may be pro-choice, you may be pro-life, um, but this is what the battle of ideas is all about, and that's what we have to have. So I do think there's some interesting alliances right now, and I think that there is a, an interesting center-right coalition starting to form. Uh, the question is, you know, who's the leader of it? What does that have to do with Trump in an age of Trumpism and all that kind of stuff? But in terms of the ideas, there's a lot of room to have interesting discussions on the right right now, and there just there just isn't on the left. So let's let's have some of those discussions then. Yeah, <laughs> um, great. What uh, what 
what keeps you from from going full full stop on on the libertarian train there <laughs> <laughs> well listen i you know i've said it many times if i sat down with the you know the greatest libertarian thinker and by the way as i said i had john stossel on this morning i think he's a pretty he's, pretty he's good up there <laughs> Yeah, he's up there. And I've had, you know, tons of great libertarian professors and other people on who I totally respect. If I sat down with the greatest libertarian thinker for five hours, I, I think it's possible that they could get me to say, you know what, after hearing all, all that, I could use the, the label libertarian instead of classical liberal. Now, to me, the labels are becoming incre- increasingly meaningless. Again, as I said before, I do think it's simply about a little more utility for the state which I still have as a classical liberal. I think there's some more utility where it's hard to pin down a a libertarian versus an anarcho-capitalist or whatever it is. It's a little more hard to pin down, well, what does that really mean? Because, and I suspect this is a little bit about what your evolution is about. The further you go down that route, you do want to just dismantle more and more and more and more. And I don't know that that's actually a a truly functional way for people to live, uh, at least within the ways we can live right now in 2017 in a system that's existed for hundreds of years. Um, but I love the, those discussions and, you know, talking about, well, could we privatize this or can the government get out of this? Any way that we can make the government smaller, get rid of regulation, let people control their destiny and their work and their life more. I, I'm all for that. But, you know, I don't know that it can be completely uh, disconnected from from some government somewhere. Um, I and I, I think that's mostly fair um, because I, I do think while I have a certain very distinct point that I would like to to get to, I think that there mm-hmm. is it is a game of inches. Like this has been a hundred years in the making, if not more, to where we have gotten this gigantic Leviathan government that we have. It's not going to you know happen at least not peacefully overnight and and have everything just work out you know, uh, just absolutely dandy. Um, but I, 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 I am curious if, if you're, if you're increasingly moving toward that way, uh, as, as yeah, you well, have more of these conversations. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think you can tell my, my default veers in that direction. Um, I would always want, you know, people to be governed for whatever government has to be to create a society. I would always want more local control, more state control. I would always want less federal control. Uh, I don't need to be governed by bureaucrats that live 3,000 miles away from me. Now, that being said, we're in a giant country. I mean, we have a massive country with over 300 million people. So there has to be some system that's keeping us cohesive and keeping us not at each other's throats. Um, But yes, again, I'm a big states' rights guy. Um, I want as much local control as possible. But to your point, yes, could all of this be changed without massive violence or some sort of other revolution? You know, it's funny, Bernie kept saying political revolution, political revolution, and that gets people excited. But, you know, every revolution comes with a ton of bloodshed. So, you know, if he had not said the word political in front of it, people would have been like, he's calling for revolution. That sounds violent. All he did was throw the word political in there, but the but every revolution is political. So I think he was playing with fire a bit related to just saying the word revolution over and over. Um, but to your point, what I would say is the best way to do that, to get less government without having a bloody revolution, would be that this is why it comes to me, and this is maybe where I've shifted a little bit more in your direction, I've shifted a little bit right, it comes down to economics. 
that the government should stop taking as much from us. It has a massive spending problem. So let's keep more of what you rightfully earn. And if you keep more of your money and then you want to privately finance Planned Parenthood or whatever the hell you want to do, if you want to give all your money to your local uh, park or you want to help you know, the community next door build a basketball court, then go ahead and do it. But I think the only way we can actually shift some of these things is through economics. It's the only safe way to do it. Let's put it that way. So I would say the best way we can do this is cut taxes on people and keep making the government smaller financially. And then it will it just by default will have to do less. And by the way, at the same time, the government is just a huge bloated monstrosity. So just taking away some of the money, people are like, oh, that means we're going to cut all these services. No. How about we also make it a slimmer, trimmer machine? I think that would be pretty good. I find this really uh, interesting right now because I find myself looking back to where I was even four or five years ago um, and where I was I'm, – I'm completely for you know legalization of drugs now. I'm completely for um, just just as, as much as you could possibly imagine. Um, but even five years ago, I was – I find myself very struggling with those issues. But I mm-hmm. knew I was going toward that way. I just didn't know. I didn't find myself comfortable uh, with with accepting that. Yeah, that's that's where I stand now. Um, yeah, and and I find that increasingly, even even today, there are issues that that I find myself like that. Probably the most recent one um, was on issues like like immigration. I there's nobody explained to me the the very simple economic aspects of immigration the way that. The right talks about closed borders, but then the left just cries you a racist if you, you know, if, if you disagree mm-hmm. with that, with their position. Yep. And it just, it, neither side made much sense to me, but it, you know, I, I leaned a little bit more to the right until I understood the economics of it. Um, how, how far have, have you changed in your, in your economic theories? Are you, are, you, are you familiar with like the Austrian school or, or the Chicago school of economics? I am. And what I would say is that basically my default. So as a general look, if you're going to be a limited government guy, that means you're giving less money to the government. The only way you limit the government is to is to give it less money. So I would always default on that. I would say on taxes, you know, Basically, it's funny. I, as I said, I mentioned and uh, I interviewed Stossel this morning, mm-hmm. and I asked him about taxes. And I truly, although I knew he's a limited government guy, I didn't know what his specific policy on taxes were. And he almost said exactly what I've been saying on my show for a while now. I would be for something like a fifteen percent flat tax, but we could fiddle with whatever that number is. But let's say a fifteen percent flat tax exempt everybody making less than forty or fifty thousand dollars a year. So you've really then that's a way of helping people who need it most, who are struggling most, they get completely exempt. And then everyone else above that, uh, you know, is at 15%. And then you know what, if you're if you're into the tens and hundreds of millions of dollars, then maybe there's a little bit of a progression. I don't even know that economically that makes sense. But I think in the concept of, you know, taking so, a little bit of wealth and moving it to the public good, there's some value there. Now, this is where as a as an anarchist or a, a true libertarian would definitely not be thrilled with me. I can see I, I can just see that argument. I think there's something there for that. Um, but beyond that, uh, you know, the government doesn't have to give us everything. I think it is your duty to do with your money what you see fit. And I actually think you know it's a dim way to view the world 
that if the government won't help poor people, the government won't give this to this person or do that for that person. Nobody will. That, that nobody will. It's such a it's such a dim view of what humanity is. I don't think people are evil. I don't think people are inherently um, selfish. Actually, I think people are uh, are rational. You know, for the most part, I'm not talking about truly crazy people, and I'm not talking about truly evil people. But I think for the most part, most of us actually want to do good. And, you know, for example, I, I can give you just a very simple example. So the, the, I'm in a fairly new house here that I moved into. We built the studio here. I've spent a ton of money on, on buying equipment that we now own. And I hired all sorts of electricians and, you know, people doing plaster on the walls and plumbing and all this stuff. All this was all, these were all business expenses. Now I, I live in an area here where the, the highway, the egg, the local highway, the exit by my house it's a dump. There's just garbage all over the place. And it's just, it's crap. It just shouldn't, it just shouldn't be that way. So I've been calling the local government here in, in my, the poorest part of LA that I'm in and asking them to fix it. Now they've told me they are going to get some people out there to fix it. Now I've been doing this for about two months and they haven't done it yet. But now I, I can either, I can either go out there and do it myself, by the way, that is one thing I could do. I could spend a day and grab a couple of friends and, you know, buy them some beers after and say, guys, could you just help me clean up this this mess. I could do it myself. I could hope that my local government, but the idea that it should just be that the federal government should be in charge of everything is a, is a very scary proposition. So again, I've been able to use the principles that I talk about on the show. I try to apply to my real life and how I, how I treat my business and my employees and also how, how I live in my own community here. You know, if there's uh, if there's crap all over my street, well, I can either help pick it up or I can wait for some massive government operation to do it. By the way, that being said, the, the trash pickup is pretty decent here and that is run by the government. So some things I think they can be okay at. Um, and and to, to that point, even to go a little bit further, a lot of times government will, will punish people if they, if they even try to do something like what you were talking about. And it's it's mind boggling. <laughs> I was that, thinking that actually. It's mind boggling that they'll that they'll not take the time to actually take care of the issue. But when somebody else says, "You know what? We can do this," then they'll they'll take the time to actually uh, to to punish them. It's funny you say that because I completely was thinking that if I go out there, first off, it's very dangerous. You know, yeah. like to be on the on a off a major highway on the exit cleaning up garbage. But then I was thinking that, like, if a cop drove by, I feel like I'd probably be arrested yeah. or fined for cleaning up the neighborhood. You know? Especially in California. I mean, yeah. my goodness. Um, so let's, as we start to wind down here, um, yeah. I want to know, this can kind of be sort of like a lightning round, but uh, sure. you, you, know, you don't have to keep your answer short. Um, I'll do what I can. All right. Uh, tell me what book has had the most influence on you. Oh, on liberty, without question. Common sense, also. Um, uh, and if you just want to read a great book uh, that's that's science based, but gets into a lot of this stuff almost by default, uh, Carl Sagan's last book. He actually passed away before it was finished, so his wife actually uh, wrote the epilogue. It's called Billions and Billions. Okay. And um, what has been the one thing that has uh, that that you have changed most philosophically on? Uh, I think it's, it's truly, I mean, it's, it's sort of what we're talking about here throughout, but I think it's truly understanding what personal responsibility is, truly understanding what liberty is and what the individual is more than anything else mm -hmm. that know what you are not given anything on this earth. No, nothing is just yours 
or just because you want it and just because someone has more for, than you doesn't mean you deserve it. Go out and get it and work hard. That's what that's what's virtuous. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. The whole point is that it won't be easy. If everything was easy, we'd all be fat. Well, we're all fat and lazy anyway, I guess. But, you know, we you have to go out and get it and understand that it's your life and uh, and no one owes you anything. I think that's the most important thing. What does Dave Rubin do on his uh, on his on his free time if he has <laughs> if that's even a thing? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, truly, I mean, you you know how tight I was for time to to do this, and I'm right. glad I, I was able to carve out a little time during the weekdays. I have virtually no time. I, I you know I've been working on a book. I'm always, you know I'm writing my direct messages. I'm preparing for interviews. I'm doing interviews. I'm traveling to colleges. I don't have much time. When I have a few minutes, if I could get in a little bit of video game time, I try to, but it's pretty, I mean, I literally haven't even turned on my PlayStation in a month, so it's not even that. I try to play some basketball when I can. Um, you know, I, uh, we host a lot of dinner parties here, and, I, and a lot of the people that I've had on the show who've been influences of mine and people that I really admire, I've become friends with, so I've, I've had a lot of great dinners, uh, and, and I do like uh, the red wine. <laughs> Um, what is the most underrated, in your opinion, Star Wars flick? Ah, well, I would say that Revenge of the Sith is actually a good movie. You know, the prequels have a series of the prequels. Uh, you know, I could talk about this that's, for that, hours. That's, now. A, that's a great answer, first of all, because <laughs> I, I personally I think that it's it's criminally underrated, and that yeah. that people who who hate it. I mean, I, I understand why in some aspects, but like as far as a story goes, it's fantastic. Yeah. Look, the prequels, of course. Acting is terrible. The yeah. dialogue is stiff. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, George Lucas, you know, I'm not one of these people that, you know, all these people like hate him now as if he ruined Star Wars. And it's like, man, he gave you the what for me is the most magical, enchanting story of my life. This yeah. thing that I love that is so rich with characters that I could endlessly talk about and be thrilled with forever. So I don't hold any of this against him. I think he bit off too much to chew and that he was writing them, directing them, producing them. I'm talking about all the prequels. So, so yes. The acting's terrible. The the dialogue's rough, but the second half of Revenge of the Sith is is excellent. And more than anything else, if you can put aside some of the dialogue, you can put aside some of the pod racing and Jar Jar and some of the stiffness and the the awful awkwardness of the love story between Padme and and Anakin. If you can put that stuff aside, the story of the prequel about the accumulation of power and that how when one side gets too powerful how quickly authoritarianism comes in it's so relevant to everything going on right now it's such a brilliant political story and unfortunately it got mucked up in a, in a lot of that other stuff but but i think sith does a really great job job especially in that second half dealing with some philosophical issues and personal issues and i wish they i just wish they had been better movies because the political story there is actually a beautiful thing i mean watching palpatine rise to power and manipulate both sides and use war and use economics and all of that it's it's so it's so cool i i, I think it's great i just wish it had been executed better i mean just the just the speech he gives at the end of it is is enough to you know send chills down your down your spine and like you're watching Hitler or something rise to power. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I wish it had been better. Uh, Dave, we are about out of time here. I've I've really enjoyed this interview. I'm really happy we got to do this. Um, why don't you tell us where people can find you online and on social media? 
Yeah. Well, first off, I, I enjoyed this as well, and uh, and good luck with the podcast. And uh, and you're persistent. You know, it's funny. I get so many requests to do a zillion things, and often I'm just like I, I tell people, or or my producer tells people, you know, circle back in a little bit. We'll see if we can do it. And I think sometimes people get pissed at that, and they don't understand how busy people can be. Um, but but you were persistent, and that's and then I checked out what you're doing and some of the people you've interviewed, and I've interviewed some of the people you've interviewed. Yeah, a lot so, of overlap there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So first off, keep up the good work. Thank you. Uh, and to find me, you know, youtube.com uh, slash Ruben Report, twitter.com slash Ruben Report, facebook.com slash Ruben Report, instagram.com slash Ruben Report. I, I think you got the idea here. Right, right. Um, and, um, of course, you can you can follow the show at Liberty, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and be sure to follow me at Caleb Franz. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes. Give us a rating and a review. Um, so that way you will never miss an episode or an update and until next week, we'll see you.